Chapter One, Part Two of the Making of a Nation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Making of a Nation: The Beginnings of Israel's History by Charles Foster Kent. Chapter One, Part Two. Four: A Comparison of the Two Accounts of Creation. The account of creation found in the second chapter suggests the simple, direct ideas of a primitive people, while the account in Genesis 1 has the exact, repetitious, majestic literary style of a legal writer. Are the differences between these two accounts of creation greater than those between the parallel narratives in the Gospels? We recognize that the differences in detail between the Gospel accounts of the same event are due to the fact that no two narrators tell the same story in the same way. Are the variations between the two biblical accounts of creation to be similarly explained? A growing body of biblical scholars hold, though many differ in judgment, that the account of the first chapter of Genesis was written by a priestly writer who lived about 400 B.C., and the second account 400 years earlier by a patriotic prophetic historian. Observe that the two accounts agree in the following fundamental teachings. 1. One supreme God is the Creator. 2. Man is closely akin to God. 3. All else is created for man's best and noblest development. Is the primary aim of these accounts to present scientific facts or to teach religious truths? Paul says in Timothy that, quote, Every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction which is in righteousness. End quote. Is there religious value, even as in the parables of the New Testament, entirely independent of their historical or scientific accuracy? Is there any contradiction between the distinctive teachings of the Bible and modern science? Do not the Bible and science deal with two different but supplemental fields of life, the one with religion and morals, the other with the physical world? 5. Man's Conquest and Rulership of the World In the story of Genesis 1, man is commanded to subdue the earth and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that creeps upon the earth. How far has man already subdued the animals and made them serve him? How far has he conquered the so-called natural forces and learned to utilize them? Is the latter-day conquest of the air but a step in this progress? Are all inventions and developments of science in keeping with the purpose expressed in Genesis 1? Does the command imply the immediate or the gradual conquest of nature? Why? Do science and the Bible differ or agree in their answers to these questions? 6. Man's Responsibility as the Ruler of the World Consider the different ways in which the biblical accounts of creation state that man is akin to God. In the one account, man was created in the image of God. In the other, Jehovah formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils his own life-giving breath. In what sense is man godlike? Are all men made in the image of God? Does this story imply that every man has the right and capacity to become godlike? A high official of China, whose power of authority extends to questions of life and death, is called the father and mother of his people. If he fails in the responsibility which his authority imposes upon him, and the people in consequence create a disturbance, he is severely punished, sometimes by death. Does authority always imply responsibility? Of what value to man is the conquest of the forces of nature? President Roosevelt said that he considered the conservation of the natural resources of the United States the most important question before the American people. 
Is this political question also a religious question? Why did God give man authority over the animal world? Does the responsibility that comes from this authority rest upon every man? One of the laws of the Boy Scouts reads, quote, A scout is kind, he is a friend to animals, he will not kill nor hurt any living creature needlessly, but will strive to save and protect all harmless life, end quote. Is this a practical application of the teaching in Genesis 1? If God's purpose is to make everything good, man's highest privilege as well as duty is to cooperate with him in realizing that purpose. Are men today as a whole growing happier and nobler? In what practical ways may a man contribute to the happiness and ennobling of his fellow men? Is your community growing better? What would be the result if you and others like yourself did your best to improve conditions? If so, how? Questions for further consideration. Is man's possession of knowledge and power the ultimate object of creation? If not, what is? Does human experience suggest that man's life on earth is, in its ultimate being, simply a school for the development of individual character and for the perfecting of the human race? Is there any other practical way in which a man can serve God except by serving his fellow man? If so, how? Subjects for further study. 1. The Origin and Content of the Babylonian Stories of Creation Hastings, Dictionary of the Bible, Volume 1, 501-7 Kent, Students' Old Testament, Volume 1, 360-369 2. The Relation of the Biblical Story of Creation to the Babylonian Kent, Students' Old Testament, Volume 1, 369-70 3. The Seeming Conflict Between the Teachings of the Bible and Science and the Practical Reconciliation. Sir Oliver Lodge, Science and Immortality, Section 1. End of Chapter 1